Yo, this is Brian Borstein. Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. I did not say training and nutrition this time, so if you guys listen often, I switched up the intro right there. Uh, The reason I did that is because it's simple. We go so much deeper than training and nutrition. I am a strength trainer. I am also a nutrition coach, so we talk a lot about that, but coaching is so much deeper than that, so we're going to touch on all things inside this podcast. Anything related to personal development, we're probably going to cover it because my goal is to help you develop into the best person possible. We're going to coach you through the speakers. If you have not heard this podcast before, if you're new here, please do me a favor. Definitely subscribe to the show so you can keep getting updates on new episodes. But go check out the top four episodes inside the show notes in the description. I dropped the links for those. It's going to be the Nutrition FAQ, the Training FAQ, my personal journey and story into fitness, and then last but not least, Nutritional Periodization, which is something I am very passionate about. Today's podcast is with my good friend, Brian Borstein. Brian has done... Damn near everything in the training space. He is really well known for his program design um, and having a wide variety of not only knowledge but also experience in the trenches in so many avenues. Uh, I'm talking training professional athletes, celebrities, CrossFit uh, people going to the CrossFit Games, owning a CrossFit gym, but also jumping heavily into different styles of bodybuilding as well. So this is a guy that really knows how to blend multiple modalities and focuses of the training world, of different training worlds, and kind of bring them together and bridge the gap. Um, So I really enjoyed this podcast with him, especially because he's a good friend of mine, but also because this is actually our second episode. So this is like part two of him coming on the show. I'll link the first episode in the description so you can go kind of learn more about Brian, learn about his philosophies, learn about his journey, his story. Uh, But today is a training Q&A. So we actually reached out to both of our followings. We got the best questions that were sent in and we covered those today, which was really fun because Usually we don't do Q&As with guests. It's usually a specifically like an interview on their story, what they specifically do, what special niche they have, whatever it may be. But today we literally just covered uh, a ton of questions. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this because I know you guys love the Q&As that I do. Well, now I have a partner to do it with me and we're doing all things training. Guys, if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy training Q&A, if you enjoy program design, if you want to learn more about this stuff, The best thing you can do, the thing I always recommend to people when I get this question all the time, how can I learn more? How can I educate myself better? How can I be a better coach? How can I do this on my own? How can I be my own coach? And one of the responses I always give is attend seminars, attend live events. Like, yes, certifications are great. Yes, courses are great. Yes, read every day you can. I do it still to this day. I check out blogs. I listen to podcasts. All those things are great. But there's something about connecting in person, paying to be at an event, taking notes, asking questions live in person, and then getting hands-on with the coaches that have experience in the trenches. You have an opportunity to do this in Seattle with myself and Lauren Conlin. We have so much experience in this coaching game. Um, she has a high-level college degree in this field. So it's not just a random degree. It is literally in the – she is in the trenches in Bill Campbell's lab, which is known as the physique laboratory. This is like the one place that they do the best studies and research about physique science. So she is coming from the trenches. She has a ton of experience in the professional – physique world, bikini figure, bodybuilding, so on and so forth. I have a ton of experience with physique, bikini, bodybuilding, CrossFit, which both have worked with WWE professionals. Like we have dove so deep into this coaching, training and nutrition field, and we're coming together to put on a seminar to educate you 
on how to get the best results possible for yourself and for your clients. So no matter who you are, if you are looking to change your physique, achieve your best physique, or help others do that, you need to be at this seminar. You need to learn from us. You need to interact with us. You need to connect with us. And then on the second day, you need to train with us so we can critique you, give you feedback, and show you exactly how to do the movements properly throughout your exercise. So this is going to be a seminar that touches all things nutrition with Lauren, all things training program design with myself. And then day two, the bonus day, we actually get to train with you and really get hands-on to help you make the most out of your workouts, guys. I'm super fired up about this. There's nothing I love more than connecting and meeting people in person and really diving into the science so it's applicable to the people at the event. So if you're in Seattle, if you're in the Northwest, or if you're ready to fly out, I know we got a bunch of people already flying across the country to be here. It's going to be amazing. I cannot wait. There's going to be a link to purchase your tickets in the show notes. And if you have any questions at all, you guys have my email. It's also in the show notes, Cody at boomboomformance.com. Email me any question you have. I would love to chat with you, love to tell you more, and love to get you at this seminar. Now, before I get into this show with Brian, I just want to do a quick reminder, guys. The best way for you to help me grow and spread this message, remember, this is a free podcast where I'm just trying to deliver as much value as possible to you so people can get better results completely free. If you want to help me with that movement and help me reach more people, the best way to do that is not only leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, yes, but take a screenshot of this show, post on your Instagram story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom, tag Brian at Brian Borstein. Both of our handles are going to be in the show notes. Tag us. Let us know who you are. We want to thank you for listening, and we want to thank you for spreading the message with us. All right, guys. Without any further ado, let's get on to this training Q&A with Brian Borstein. All right, my man. Brian Borstein. Dude, I'm excited to have you back on the podcast. It's always great chatting with you, staying up to date with you. Um, and I'm really excited for this because for those of you listening, we've never really done a Q&A podcast with another person. It's always just me. Um, so I'm excited to actually have people come on for a second round and do a Q&A. This is the first one, but just thinking about this and, and Brian and myself collecting questions for this, I'm actually already thinking about who I want to have back on the show so we can do this again because this is going to be really fun. So um, for those not listening, just because we have to give a, a brief introduction uh, for you, uh, who is Brian Borstein in a nutshell? Uh, Brian Borstein is a, uh, a vet of 20 plus years from the training world and uh, went through some bodybuilding stuff in my early years, more kind of five by five strength training, um, progressed into a CrossFit space for uh, almost a decade, and then been kind of more into this hybrid bodybuilding focused, physique focused kind of space for the last couple of years. It's a very humble and brief introduction from Brian, guys. Um, if you haven't heard episode one, which I, w- I already mentioned in the intro, go listen to the episode one because he does have a really interesting story. And this is one of those guys that's really kind of had a crazy – and it's actually perfect that your, your business has evolved because it has like a crazy evolution through these different phases of training. So it's always fun um, running his programs and training with him and talking with him because – he really does understand multiple facets of training. Um, and I think that's so important as a coach. Like you can't be grounded in one area. So Brian's a really good example of uh, how to do it right. And, and it's actually a perfect person to get into this podcast because we're going to be doing a ton of questions strictly on training. So let's just get right into it, dude. The first one um, is pretty basic, but I think we could give an extremely comp- uh, complex answer on this, but I like it. Should you dial down volume in a cut? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, totally. This is uh, actually one of the questions that came from uh, my evolved training community. And uh, this woman specifically is part of my uh, physique program. And uh, it's actually a really good question because 
I believe my physique program is going to be a program that's pretty suitable for whether you're gaining or cutting. But um, within kind of the, the Facebook community that I have for the program, I, uh, I try to do a thorough job of helping people individualize what is basically a generic program. So in our physique cycle right now, we're, we're doing a, a little bit of volume accumulation where we're progressing from, from kind of lower effort, lower volume work, and then building up volume over the course of the mesocycle, deloading, dialing back, and kind of restarting over again. So um, in relation to her question, I think that the thing to keep in mind primarily with this is that your uh, the minimum amount of volume that you're going to need, um, minimum effective volume, as, as Mike would call it, um, is going to go up a little bit as you're dieting. And this is just a result of having less total calories in, creating less of an anabolic environment. You're going to need more training volume to make sure that you don't lose muscle as you're cutting. Um, and a lot of that obviously depends on how, how many calories you're cutting, et cetera, what, how, deep you, how steep your deficit is. Um, but I don't think it changes a whole lot. I think biofeedback and, and autoregulation become extremely important words to include if you're going to be uh, embarking on training in, in a volume style while cutting. So, you know, while I say you need a little bit more volume to, to be able to meet your minimum effective requirements, the other side of that equation is that the maximum amount of volume that you can do also decreases. So theoretically, if we have three sets in the beginning of our mesocycle and call it six sets at the end of the mesocycle for somebody that's in a, a maintenance or a surplus calories, I think what happens is that window shrinks down a little bit if you're dieting and therefore you probably need a little bit more volume on the front end and a little bit less volume on the back end. And then there's kind of a whole lot of manipulation or, or understanding of, of your personal feedback and how your energy is and how your body's responding and whether you're still getting pumps or how, uh, how impactful the soreness is and the fatigue on the following days and things like that. So um, that would be kind of my like super short answer. And I'm very curious what you have to say on that front as well. I would agree. Um, I think that when we are dieting, our intensity goes down. So it's almost one of those things where you're, I think your volume's going to go down uh, literally, but not necessarily on paper. And what I mean by that is if you can try to maintain your volume in a cut, I think it's probably a good thing because like you said, you actually need that volume in order to maintain muscle during cut. As we know, like when you're dieting or cutting, you're not really trying to build muscle. You're trying to maintain and what's the best way to maintain muscle? Well, it's to train like you're building muscle. So bring your protein up and train with enough volume to quote unquote build muscle. You're just going to maintain it. But I mean, if you're on a serious diet, like what if we, I have a couple of uh, power lifters I'm putting through a diet right now and their strength is going up, but the rate of loss is like so tiny and we're taking so long to do it because they have to improve strength. So in a normal person, if they're really trying to get after a cut, I think that your volume is going to drop just because the weight lifted so your intensity is going to drop over time maybe not by a ton um, but like the poundage you're lifting is probably going to drop but most of us don't record that as volume we're usually looking at sets and reps yep. um, which is what i recommend just because it's less confusing like looking at tonnage is just so complicated unless you're yeah unless you're a power lifter i don't think it's necessary but um no i 100 percent agree i think i think the only thing i would add is that your volume probably will dial down a little bit, but it's just a matter of your intensity or your total weight lifted dropping a little bit. And, and if you can just strive to maintain the weight you're lifting, I think you'd be in a good place. 
Yeah, I mean, anyone that can go through a cut and maintain strength, like you come out of that cut and you're like, oh shit, I just maintained more or less all my muscle mass. And and I know that, that strength isn't a perfect proxy for muscle mass one-to-one, but it's a decent proxy. And, and if you can go through a cut and maintain strength, that's great. Um, especially when you consider things like your knee is probably going to drop just because you have a little bit lower energy expenditure, um, which might actually be part of the reason why maintaining training volume is important in a cut as well. Um, but in her, in her case, I just would say that, um, biofeedback, man, like making sure that, that, that she feels good, that she's going into the gym and she's not completely depleted and, um, possibly staying a little bit more shy of failure. Um, on this program, I'm trying to keep people for the most part, one to two reps shy. And I know that we'll, uh, we'll delve into failure training here a little bit later in this discussion, but, um, given that science has kind of shown that you don't need to, to go to failure. I think that when you're in a cut specifically is a perfect time to make sure that you're avoiding those like really hard reps that are going to cause um, additional fatigue. That's going to be a little bit harder to recover from. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I actually like the point about neat, man. I never thought about that, but that's actually a really good point and reason to keep volume up. Um, hundred percent agree. I think that's a great answer. I think that not enough people actually record like that biofeedback and, and I know we're going to like, I've just got to bring it up because you mentioned failure. I did a, uh, I went back and did a program. It's a Christian Thibodeau program uh, called, I think it's called Built for Bad. It's from T Nation. But like, dude, I did it when I was, I think like 18 years old and I got phenomenal gains, but I could handle way more at 18 years old than I could today. I was probably like 20, but still same thing. Um, and I tried to do it and it's basically a full body program five days a week and you stay within that 85 to 95% of one RM for everything. And it's literally like five rep, four rep, three rep, two rep, one rep of, I think it's deadlift, floor press, uh, military press, chin up, and then like a high pull or something. Like it's very intense. It was great. And like the first three weeks I felt amazing because my nervous system was just on fire. So I just kept going, but this is the problem with going to failure or doing too much or not watching your volume or your intensity while you're cutting is like, I just kept going. And then after however many weeks, I think I was only got like three weeks in, like when I needed a deload, but I kept going, it just hit me. And I literally felt like moody, tired, fatigued, like almost depressed. Cause I was just like, man, I just don't want to do anything. And it's just like a good reason. Like you can't push that boundary too far because it will literally hit you before you realize it. Yeah, dude, I a hundred percent relate. And I think that that was kind of the way that that's what defined my like almost my entire CrossFit career was just <laughs> over fatigued and constantly depleted and never really understanding that, uh, that there was a better way or, um, that my body wanted this rest or needed this rest that I wasn't giving it. Yeah. Um, all right, dude, let's get to the next one. Uh, this is a longer question, but I think it's really good. Why do so many bodybuilders do lower weight, higher rep routines? I realized that that helps create a pump from inflammation and or water retention, but I don't think that pump actually lasts very long. Yet pro bodybuilders are not small or weak by any means. So do the best bodybuilders actually follow a lower rep, heavier weights on the regular or just use higher rep workout for shows? I guess what I'm asking is what's the benefit of progressive loading program in a high rep program, 12 plus reps versus a low rep, three to five rep program? I guess they're just asking, for pro bodybuilders, like why do pro bodybuilders typically stay in that super high rep zone? Is that necessary? And do any of them drop down low? And I think rather than us speaking for professional bodybuilders, I think the best way to kind of tackle this question would be like, 
when do those type of programs uh, make sense? Why would we do those type of programs? So on and so forth in both categories of low rep and high rep. Yeah, I mean, that was exactly how I was going to attack this too. Like I can't speak for, <laughs> for a pro bodybuilder and what they do and, and what the, why they do it or, or what they put on Instagram. Um, but I think the key word here is periodization. And, uh, you know, studies have shown recently and uh, last couple of years that anything from that like five to 30 rep loading zone is going to work. Yeah. Um, since Greg Knuckles kind of coined the term hard sets for, uh, for volume, I think that that's just perfect. I mean, if you do a hard set of eight reps or you do a hard set of 30 reps, you're still doing a hard set of work and the hypertrophic response um, tends to, to demonstrate relative similar effects at both ends of the rep range. So I think the key is that you want to train in all the rep ranges. Like you want to work those super slow twitch muscle fibers in the 20 to 30 rep range. You want to work the fast twitch muscle fibers in more of like the five to eight or five to 10 range. You probably want to do a majority of your work in the 10 to 20 range. Um, I know that's like a really, really big range and um, a set of 10 is, is very different than a set of 20. The way that I tend to implement it in my programming is for that 10 to 20 range is I'll start my first set of an exercise in like 15 to 20 range. And then I'll just kind of let the reps trickle off and drop set to set so that by the third or fourth set um, down into that like 10 to 12 range and I'm able to hit that full spectrum and get the, the muscle response that way. Um, so as to why they do that, I just, yeah, again, I think they just need to hit all those different rep ranges, uh, hit all the different types of muscle fibers. I think whether you do that within like an undulating fashion in a week where you have like a day of low reps, a day of medium reps, a day of, of high reps. Um, I don't think that necessarily matters in the structure of your program, whether you do that or whether you do like a three month or two month cycle of lower rep focus, a two or three month cycle of mid rep focus, a two or three month cycle of high rep focus. Um, if you're going to do a bunch of high reps, I see no reason to not kind of institute some uh, metabolite training in there and get a bunch of metabolic stress, um, do some supersets and some drop sets and some myo reps and um, really kind of utilize the pump for what it is, right? I mean, science has shown that, that the pump has some benefit. Um, I don't necessarily chase the pump but I think that the pump is a good sign that what you're doing is working. And I also think that you should be able to get a pump from sets of five to 10, maybe not as drastic or as kind of shirt ripping as you would in a set of like 20 to 30. Um, but you, you should be able to be get, getting pumps from five to 10. And if you're not, I think that you need to look at uh, some kind of outside factors a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think, I think, because he mentioned bodybuilders doing that pre-show. I think he's assuming that that's something they do right before the show. Um, I think that is a result of what we just talked about. Like as you diet down, you have less energy. You can't push heavy weights. So you have to make up for that volume somehow. What's the easiest way to do it? Lighter weights, higher reps. And I think that's what it comes down to. A lot of old school bodybuilders, if you look at them, they do really, really high rep because it's the easiest way to crank out a ton of volume without smashing your nervous system. If you were to hit enough volume to grow doing just sets of three to five, you would just be fried all the time. You'd just be sure. Um, So I think I 100% agree with you that you need to do all of it. And that's what my answer would have been too. I think I like programming undulation 
when I don't know how long a client's going to be with me. So if I know somebody's going to be doing this program for a month, maybe three, if I'm lucky, four or five, then I'm probably going to have a like a upper lower split with one day that's a little bit lower rep zone, a little bit higher rep zone on the next day. Um, kind of like a conjugate style, right? Like a max effort and a dynamic effort. Um, but if I have somebody that's going to be with me for a year, I actually do like doing phases of like, Hey, we're going to try to build strength for two months, like just lower rep stuff. And then we're going to slowly bring accumulate volume into the accumulation phase. And then we spend time, like you said, in a higher rep zone. Um, and then I also think, I think adherence is something to mention there, dude. Like for me, I like starting my workout with a little bit lower rep. I know like I get a really good pump on like low rep bench press for some reason, like just heavy chest work. Like I enjoy it. It's fun. But I also like finishing my workout with pump like work, like just high rep curls and high rep pushups and dips. So I think there is something to say about like using all these things and just putting it in a way inside your program that makes you actually fucking enjoy it. So you stick to it. Yeah, that's such a good point too, man. Um, and I, I really like what you said about undulating with a client uh, when you don't know how long they're going to be with you because it's great in theory to be like, we're going to do this macro cycle where we have a 12-month block and we're going to go like three hypertrophies, then we're going to go a session of strength and kind of dial back the, the, the volume a little bit, and then we're going to do some metabolite work and blah, 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 and all this stuff, but it doesn't really work if clients aren't going to stick with it. So um, as far as this question and you know what you brought up in regards to, to bodybuilders peaking for a show... My guess would be that they probably have an entire six month or year plan and that the end of their plan, the last month or so before the show, um, they're trying to mitigate joint fatigue that might come with heavier reps. Um, when you're dieting, you don't have as much kind of plasticity. Is that the right word? Plasticity within, um, within your, your body and stuff. So I think that doing higher rep work um, like you said, accumulating volume with lower loads is, uh, is probably the reasoning behind that and probably less about like, I'm going to get this pump a month out that's going to stick with me for, for the remaining month. And then I'm going to stand on stage looking super jacked. Yeah, exactly. And, and even to just highlight what you mentioned before with the metabolite stuff. Um, so this person knows, because I think they don't, it sounded like they almost didn't understand that getting a pump isn't just about like, like, like this morning I had an upper body workout. Like I, I walked because we have a garage gym. I walked in the kitchen and I had a really good pump and I was like, it feels great. Went and took a shower and it's pretty much gone. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's not that I'm doing this work to be like that five minutes after my workout, I feel like the man. It, it has to do with building lactic acid and building metabolites inside of your muscle because both of those things have been shown in research to actually create muscle growth. Um, it's, uh, oh, fuck, what's the word? Is it uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy that I'm thinking of? And it's basically... Yeah. Okay. So the pump, like that's why like some bodybuilders look, uh, kind of like bubbly growth. Right. And then you see those guys that are super strong. They're not huge, but they just look like a fucking rock. They're just dense. Um, it's two different goals. Right. And, and when you do that pump work, I think there is more sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. It's probably going to lead to more of that pumped look. And that's what bodybuilders want, you know? And I think, I think in my opinion, I like that look, but I also like the dense look and, uh, there's no, research to prove that low rep stuff is going to build like a dense body. But I tend to believe that I know a lot of people from anecdote just kind of feel that way. And I think that's a good reason to mix them both. Absolutely. Yeah. Bro science has a place. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. bro science. <laughs> but I believe it. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is, this is perfect time because we've mentioned it twice. So it's, it's about necessary for this question, but uh, when, if ever, is it necessary to train to failure? 
I love this question. I know we kind of talked about this before the show a little bit. Um, like I said in my intro, I've been training for over 20 years at this point. And when I started in 1997, I didn't really know any other way but to train to failure. Like if I wasn't going to failure, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, as I kind of gained more understanding and kind of became more connected within the industry and started reading research and stuff like this, I I realized something that I think the bros realized immediately, which was you can either do a shit ton of sets sub failure, or you can do a very small amount of sets to failure. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind throughout this entire discussion of failure is that your proximity to failure depends a lot on the amount of volume of work that you're doing. And I don't think that there's necessarily a right way or a wrong way. There might be a way that's better for you. Um, but as it relates to my story, I can 100% say that in the last year of 20 plus years of training, the last year, I've finally kind of accepted this notion of let me increase my volume, but pull back on the failure. And, you know, mentally having to accept that I'm okay with this change. And I had doubts where I was like, oh man, if I'm not training a failure, like, am I really losing these, these gains that are happening? Like, because the bros back in the 90s, right? Everything was, if you don't do the last rep, that's the one that matters. And so it's been about a year now of me kind of backing off the failure and, um, and, and upping the volume. And I can honestly say that I feel so much better this way. Um, yes, my gym sessions have gotten a little bit longer as I try and accumulate volume and still try to stay shy of failure and still kind of get enough stimulus for that muscle. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, if, if you're short on time, then training to failure might be a better option for you than trying to push volume sub failure. Um, but one really cool aspect of failure is that it's another way in which you can overload the muscle. So, right, we have weight, you can add more weight to the bar. We have uh, volume, the amount of sets that you're doing or total amount of work that you're doing. And we have frequency, how often you're going to be working a muscle group. And if you're going to progress these things week to week, it would kind of make sense that you also progress your proximity to failure. Um, so I really like this approach where you have your deload week where everything is super easy and chill. And then you have a kind of intro week or a primer week, as you might want to call it. And then you build on there and kind of building proximity to failure, building sets, um, building load, all of these things are elements that you can manipulate within your training to help you kind of progress toward a goal. And then when your fatigue reaches a point where you're just no longer feeling strong and positive in your sessions, you're no longer feeling that level of motivation. Maybe you're having a little bit of anxiety and you're like, oh my God, I have to take a set of back squats to like one rep shy of failure today. This is going to kill me. Then maybe at that point you deload, you kind of flush out all the fatigue and rebuild that process back up again. I love that, dude. I actually really, really like where you took this because this is something I've been experimenting with lately as well. And I think when you're an advanced lifter, it's actually really cool to play with that progression of uh, like reps and reserve kind of thing where like week one of your program, you might leave like three to four reps in reserve on your heavy compounds and let's say like two to three on your accessories or your isolation, right? And then you the next week you drop it down one next week you drop down one by your fourth week you're doing like one rep left in the tank on your compounds and i would say like half a rep or like clean failure i don't think anybody should ever go to technical failure where you literally cannot perform a rep but like 
my last rep is like, if I do another rep, I'm swinging the weight, like it's not going to be good. So it's pretty much failure. And then you deload, right? And I think doing that is actually a really cool way to progress your effort across weeks. And it gives you a way to control it. Because now when I started doing this, because beforehand I would find myself like, man, I feel good today. And I would go to like, maybe one rep in the reserve. And then the next day I didn't feel so good. And I'd bring it back. But this gave me a way to control it and actually see progression. Um, so I like where you took that cause I've been doing that quite a bit and it's, it's helped me a ton. Yeah, dude, for sure. It's, it's increased my kind of excitement to train as well. I mean, after 20 years, you constantly need these kind of new and innovative concepts and ideas that you can create awesome data sheets in Excel and like start analyzing your results and count volume and blah, 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 and all the different things that, that us dorks do. Um, so it's been like a really cool way for me to get excited to go back in the gym and be like, all right, I'm going to take this set this week to three reps shy and let's see how that feels. And um, then, you know, increasing, as you said, week to week. And I 100% agree with everything you said about, you know, maybe one rep, two reps shy on compounds and then right to that point of clean failure on the isolations. Um, I can't remember the last time I actually failed a rep. Like, I think that's an advanced thing that you and I, that you and I understand, like our body's response to stuff. But um, yeah, I can't remember the last time I was like doing a bicep curl and I was like, I failed a rep or, or anything like that. It's just kind of like you build this innate understanding with, with where your fatigue level is. Um, so yeah, it's been, um, it's been nothing short of just an incredible addition into my programming that I yeah. use for myself and clients. And I think like you mentioned this, uh, like when we were chatting beforehand, like there's been research that's come out that showed, I don't know the exact numbers, but I want to say like anything within 80% of your one rep max is actually going to provide the same amount of progress with significantly less uh, damage to the nervous system. So when we go in, it's like, okay, yes, we, and I think this is why I like my podcast I did with Austin Current, like you can smash the muscle without smashing your joint in your nervous system, Right create effort by finding your mind muscle connection, create effort by slowing down and create intensity that way versus load or uh, literally going to absolute failure because those are the things that are going to hurt your joints and hurt your nervous system. And those are the two improvements I've seen a lot, like way less achy joints and my nervous system just feels so much better. Um, And they showed like people are able to hit that muscle more uh, quickly or like sooner if they do it this way, because their recovery is so much better, if you absolutely go to failure, you're going to need to take a week off of training from that muscle. And we know that's not advantageous because your frequency and your volume is going to lower at that point. Um, so even now studies are show, showing that, which I thought was actually pretty interesting to hear that. Um, it's not something I was expecting to hear, but it just shows you that if you can just stay within that 80% of intensity, you don't need to go balls to the wall all the time. It just, it yeah. just save yourself from it. Yeah, I think this, the studies are showing more or less recently that uh, two reps shy of failure is like the perfect place where you get a shit ton of stimulus on the muscle, but you also avoid the exponential increase in fatigue that accumulates as you get one rep from failure and then two failure. Um, so I really like that. And then to, to your point about feeling the muscle more and the mind-muscle connection, man, on my deload week last week, I was doing hammer strength throws with like 50% of what I usually use. And the cramp that I was feeling in my lats was like so miserable that I almost was like, this is too hard for deload week. But at the same time, I felt like I had 10 reps left in reserve, you know? So it's, it's cool when you're able to kind of utilize these lighter weight weeks or the deload week or whatever as a means of 
really just understanding like how can I drive my elbow back so that that lat is like contracted in the perfect way versus just trying to move the weight from point A to point B. That's a really good point. I think uh, deload weeks are the perfect time to like double down on form, especially if you're lowering volume. Like I know for me, the easiest way is like I'll drop a set here and there and then I drop intensity pretty low. So it just gives you more time in the gym to literally just slow down and spend on that. Um, because this person wanted to know when is a good time to implement failure. Um, I mean, we both already said, you know, probably like week three or four towards the end before your deload week. I tend to deload every fifth week, but I have clients that deload every fourth week. It's kind of individual. Um, so probably every fourth or fifth week, like on your last week or third or fourth week, your last week of each block, you could probably push that closer to failure. I would personally say the only time you should really go to true failure um, is A, on something that is either very lightweight or the injury risk is very low. So for, for example, an inverted row, you're probably not going to fail at that because your nervous system tops out. It's probably because your grip, um, because maybe you're trying to lose weight and you're too heavy to row yourself up that many times. Your muscles aren't going to complete failure. You just can't lift your body up. That's probably going to be okay to go close to failure as long as you're not compromising form. Um, and then something like a lateral raise, for example, you're not going to destroy your shoulder joint or your nervous system if you're doing it with good form and light weights. Um, like something I love, and you might have done this before, is Joe DeFranco has that uh, shoulder shocker. Extra, it's like a shoulder complex, and it just demolishes your shoulders. But you feel really good afterwards. It's not, it, you use like 10 pound weights. So it's nothing like lactic acid accumulation. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So things that you can do it with lactic acid, I think you're fine to go to failure. Yeah. I think as well, you know, I, I deload every fourth or fifth week too. Um, and as far as this person's question, I think if you're going to go to failure, it should absolutely be the last week. And if you want to test and see whether going to failure was a good idea or not, just one time in your life, maybe you go to failure and then you're like, okay, I still feel good. I'm going to do another week to failure and see what happens. If you are still able to improve your performance, despite going to failure the prior week, and now you go to failure the next week and you're getting another rep or you're adding weight and hitting the same amount of reps, then you probably can handle failure relatively well, at least for two weeks in a row. Who knows if you can handle three weeks or four weeks or whatever, but at least that's a good proxy for, hey, I didn't get completely depleted and my body isn't completely fucked up from this. And um, I'm able to manifest at least a similar or increased level of strength the following week. That's a really good point, dude, because I think that might also be a proxy of, oh shit, maybe I'm not doing enough volume. Because I know for me, if I was, if I was really short on my volume curve and I went to failure, I'd probably be fine. But if I was doing the right amount of volume to grow and then I went to failure, I probably would not be fine. Um, so it's probably a good test to say, oh shit, maybe I should do more in my training. Um, and it's also a good test every once in a while to do if you want to do like an AMRAP. So I know for me, like, I don't do any of that right now just because I don't need to, but I know for a while, like I didn't enjoy going to like a one rep max because it just caused injury or complete failure. So I would do like 60% of my one rep max or put my body weight on a deadlift bar and do an AMRAP set of clean form. If I could get 25 reps with my body weight, like that's a good like metric to look at. And in six months, if I do it again and I get 27, I'm building strength without having to put myself through a one rep. So there is times and places. It's just very few and far between. Um, I think the last time I went to failure on like a full workout was at a hotel. I had like 30 minutes to train and like I was doing like a full body workout. So it was like almost like Dorian Yates style, like with dumbbells though. I'm gonna do one or two sets to failure of everything. Well, it comes back to what I said in the very beginning of this question, where it was, you can either train to failure with lower volume 
or you can train sub failure with higher volume. So it all kind of comes full circle. hundred percent. That's a great way of looking at it. All right. So the next one is when trying to gain some weight. Oh, this is a good one. This is from, I believe you sent this to me and I believe she is uh, going or is in the CrossFit games, correct? Yeah. Cheryl Masso. She uh, qualified for the CrossFit games as a master's this year. She's a super savage athlete and uh she contacted me. It was like, Hey, I wish I got this question in before the podcast. I was like, you're lucky the podcast is tomorrow. So (laughs) here we are. Perfect. She said, uh, when trying to gain some weight and wanting to put on muscle, how do you know that you are getting in enough volume to create growth slash strength without just putting on weight? I am a CrossFitter trying to put on some muscle and size. So I'm actually really interested in your uh, responses (laughs) because you've been in that space for longer and you're one of the only people in that space that really, uh, looks at the bodybuilding research. Um, I shouldn't say bodybuilding because there's very little research on true bodybuilders because it's impossible to change those people's lives for a study, unfortunately. But um, you know what I mean, strength research in the body. Hypertrophy research, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, Yeah, I actually think this is a really hard question. I think there's so many different ways you can take it, Um, so many variables that I think we don't know the answers to. Um, I know that Cheryl trains a lot. She's in that typical CrossFit space. She's a competitor meaning that she not only has to train for strength, maybe size, uh, but she also has to be constantly improving her conditioning and also improving skills. (laughs) So, uh, contradicting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot going on and, um, weight gain in CrossFitters is a really, really tough thing. Um, because what happens is you gain weight and you're like, hell yeah, my barbell movements are getting better. But what happens when your barbell movements get better, your gymnastics movements generally get worse, and your conditioning may or may not suffer as well. Yeah. So the whole thing is just this constant give and take of, of bulking and then kind of make – all right, so let, let's break it down. Okay, so I think the optimal route, Cheryl, is for you to look at this thing in a periodized cycle like, like anything else and, and going through a period where the focus becomes weight gain and barbell movement heavy. Uh, maybe you're doing a bit more Olympic lifting, definitely doing more of the deadlifting and benching and, and strict overhead pressing and, and bent over rowing and stuff like that. Um, probably trying to put your gymnastics work on as much of a maintenance as as you can feasibly handle. Um, making sure that you're still doing your handstand push-ups and your muscle-ups and your, your butterfly pull-ups and all that stuff. Probably trying to minimize conditioning work as much again as you can so if we're looking at this thing as maybe 50 to 60 percent of your training volume during a a weight gain phase is going to need to be focused on those barbell movements maybe 20 percent onto your gymnastics work just kind of maintaining skills and working on progressions and stuff like that and then uh probably another 20 25 percent on your conditioning work i would uh I would use your barbell movements as, as your metric based movements for sure. You have to choose probably at least one movement pattern for, or one lift for each movement pattern. Um, so we have our, our squat pattern, our hip hinge, our horizontal push pull and our vertical push pull. I think she needs to have a metric based movement for each one of those areas of the body. And she needs to be seeing that number go up. I don't want her to focus on her one rep max or her three rep max going up. And I know that that seems more relevant for CrossFit where you're like, well, if I'm going to be doing these slow barbell movements, I should probably make sure that like my, my maximal strength is going up on them. 
but I do, I don't think that maximal strength is a good proxy for muscle gain at all. Um, there's tons of guys out there that can deadlift 600, 700 pounds that weigh two thirds of what I weigh. So I, I don't, I don't think that's a good proxy at all. I think using uh, hypertrophy zone sets, a lot of like what we discussed in the beginning of the podcast, you know, your five to 10, your 10 to 20, even your 20 to thirties, um, and seeing yourself go up on those. So maybe we have a deadlift and that's a technical movement. So we're going to deadlift or RDL in the five to 10 rep range. Um, I feel like anything over 10 reps of a deadlift or an RDL on the low back is just fatiguing too much. So five to 10 range for those, same with the squat. I think you could probably go into the 10 to 15 range for things like bench presses and overhead presses, um, pull-ups and stuff like that. Obviously strict, no butterfly here. Um, and I think that as long as week to week, you're seeing your strength in these rep ranges go up and you're able to accumulate more total work. So I don't just want to see that your, your deadlift is going up for three sets of five to 10. I'd like to see a month or two from now that you're doing five or six sets of five to 10 with the same weight that you were doing three sets. So now your density is improving as well. Right. And as long as you're seeing these constant improvements and the scale weight is going up, then I think that you're, you're definitely along the right path at that point. I think that's a great answer, man. I, I like the, I think not enough people do this. I actually heard Jason Frugia said this fuck, like six, seven years ago. And I took it ever since. It's like, Picking uh, like a seven, eight, or nine rep range, I would say somewhere in between eight to 10 is probably going to be best. And actually working on your max lift for that. Like something I do for my chest is I actually look more so at my eight rep dumbbell flat bench press as like a really good indicator of if I'm building muscle in my chest, in my triceps. Because the dumbbell lets me isolate more than the barbell for me personally. It's not for everybody, but in that eight rep zone is like just a really good zone to be like, I'm in the muscle growth rep zone, but it's like more of an endurance style stuff than a strength. Cause I agree. I don't think strength is that good. You do need to get stronger somehow, but I think the eight is like a good blend in between. Um, same thing with like a T-bar row. That's just a great way for me. If I drive my elbows low, I can really isolate my lats. Um, my body weight or my grip doesn't really negatively impact that so I, I like it more than a chin up um or i would say a pull down would be another good version of this but looking at my a red max for that too so I, I really like that um i don't know if i could add too much to that i think one thing i would say or, or if this person approached me as a client i would probably my first question would be like are you talking about a upcoming comp or are we looking at your next off season because in my mind i go well shit if you're within three to four months of your next comp like don't even worry about that. Like do everything you can to just keep performing because whatever you do right now got you there in the first place. Next off season, it's actually lower. Like you said, bring your conditioning, your gymnastics, stuff like that to maintenance volume and then bring up hypertrophy volume, maintain everything you're doing, the skill that got you there. And then let's build muscle for four or five months and then spend another four or five months before the next comp bringing back that conditioning up. Um, if I were in a position where this person was like, I can't bring anything down to maintenance and I do have a comp coming up because this is like, I, it seems like a complicated question. So I can assume yeah. the situation is probably pretty complex. I would probably add some like very safe volume that could potentially add muscle in a place that's not going to hurt you. Cause if you just, cause one, I mean like, why do you need to build muscle for this? Is it an aesthetic reason? Like, do you need to build more weight? Like in my mind, I would say like, shit, let's build your traps, your lats, your glutes, your hamstrings. Cause those are not going to hurt 
anything. It's not going to put you in more protraction or any bad positions that you're too anterior dominant. And I've never seen anybody not press more, clean more, squat more from building their back, even if it's not directly. You know what I mean? It's very indirect. Um, and it's just such safe volume. If you add muscle on your back, you're not going to hurt yourself in any way. Yeah. She, um, she does have the CrossFit Games coming up here in, in end of July. So I think that your point was, was very well taken and that now is not the time for her to go on a hypertrophy phase at all. Like this is something she should consider a month after the Games when she's letting all that cortisol and stuff kind of flush out and uh, maybe like end of August is a good time for her to embark on a, on a hypertrophy phase. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. That'd be the approach I'd take. I love it. Can distance runners substitute part of their weekly mileage with energy systems training and get better at running? What kind of energy system training would you recommend? It's a good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't know a whole lot about distance running aside from the fact that it really sucks and I don't do it. <laughs> Um, but I, I do know a little bit about energy systems work. So, um, from what I understand about distance running is that the majority of training that you do in preparing for your distance running is not necessarily running that distance. Like if you're running a half marathon, you don't do a lot of work in the 10 to 13 mile range. Um, you do a lot of work in the like four to six mile range. And I think that using energy systems work is, is a great way to do that. I don't necessarily think that energy systems work in the like one to three minute time domain is going to be the best use of your time just because the transfer probably isn't going to be quite as good. Um, but energy systems work can go out a little bit longer. You can do six minute repeats, eight minute repeats, stuff like that. Um, if, if this athlete were to want to use shorter energy systems work, I don't see a problem with that either. I just think you need to accumulate a little bit more distance and volume because the volume of work that, that she's trying to do on game day is, is, is significant. So if we're doing 400 meter repeats, I think the rest period needs to be extremely short. We want to keep these as aerobic as possible. Um, so maybe it's like run 400 meters, walk 100, run 400, walk 100, something like that. Whereas for somebody who is a CrossFitter or working more in like the glycolytic zone, it might be more of like a one-to-one -one or a one-to-two or a two-to-one or something like that. But um, I think trying to stay as aerobic as possible in the energy systems work is probably a good play. Um, and I don't really have a whole lot to add beyond that. I, I actually – so I'm, I'm in a similar position. I don't have a ton of experience with runners. But I did have a client come to me when I was in the gym working still um, who ran marathons and she didn't tear her Achilles, but she had a pretty bad injury to her Achilles. So basically she couldn't run and she had like one final, like, I don't know if it was a half or a full marathon to run. Um, I don't know how many months down the road. And when I told her, I'm like, there is no option. So I just tested the theory of exactly what they're asking. And I was like, we're just going to do energy systems. That's very easy on your joints and on your foot, but we're going to stay in that kind of oxidative zone. Um, we did a lot of we actually did a lot of even some three minute repeats for like really short periods. But what we did is like, I had her doing this probably three or four times a week sled drags. One day was like three minutes on one minute off. One day was um, 20 minutes, just nonstop marching. Um, a lot of assault bike and rower, but doing the same similar stuff. Like let's go for 10 minutes, take a rest, 10 minutes, take a rest, eight minutes, take a rest, different things like that. Um, and she actually had her best time. And I, I contributed to, uh, not necessarily that we improved her running, but that we improved her joint health and she probably had less aches and pains and was able to do it. So we probably maintained her energy systems. But I think like 
that's it, that's the thing about a heart and your lungs. It's a system. It does like my teacher used to always say this, and I always say it all the time. I love it. Your muscles are stupid, right? They don't know that you are using a cable rope extension for a face pull. They just know that you are doing external rotation with your shoulders, and they have to fire the rear delts and the traps. I believe that there's a similarity with the entire oxidative aerobic system. Like it knows it has to breathe. It knows it has to go through this pattern. So whatever equipment you use to do that, I don't think is going to be a huge difference. Um, but I still do believe from a neurological standpoint, if you've never ran before and you've only done row and stuff, I don't think you're going to be the best marathon runner. So you do have to do the skill, but I do think you can substitute quite a bit of it. And I would actually recommend it if you plan on having longevity in your joints. Yeah. And then also uh, one other kind of related aspect is that doing energy systems work may actually increase your, your gait, the, the proficiency of your gait, of your stride, of the technique that you use when you run. Because we've all been in that situation where we're at like mile seven and we just start kind of like boom, 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 like trudging along. But if you're just having to do like two minutes of work at a time with short rest periods, that short rest period might be just be enough so that you can kind of re-engage the mind-muscle connection with, with, with your stride and kind of institute better technical proficiency in the movement. I love that, dude. That's a really good point. Um, and I think me and Brian are on the same point with um, <clears throat> a lot of our clients. We don't put a ton of running in if aesthetics is the goal. Um, I think it's for people out there listening who think they need to run for an aesthetic purpose or physique purpose. I think you're better off doing a lot of sled work, assault bike, rower, things that are going to be very joint friendly because there's just no reason. And, and the only clients I, I allow, I shouldn't say allow because I don't control anybody, but that I uh, tell like, go ahead and keep running are the people that are like, Hey, like this is my getaway. Like I, it's a mental break, like stuff like right. that. I think it's okay. But, um, hundred percent agree. All right. We got, uh, like six or seven questions left. So let's start cranking through these. Cause we got about 20 yeah, minutes left. For sure. Can you discuss, uh, this is actually a really good question too. This came from, uh, the podcast private forum that I have. Can you discuss your opinions on warm-ups? I saw Brian had a recent post stating you are warming up too much, which I actually really like. With <laughs> FIT and Functional Muscle 2.0, which are two of my programs, I know you have a daily warm-up in there and then you're priming circuits before getting into the lifting. How much is enough versus what is optimal if time isn't a factor and does your warm-up change when doing a full-body routine versus splits like an upper lower or push pull legs with the general warm-up and then a warm-up sets for the actual <laughs> lifts? So there's a lot of parts to this, but um, I'm excited for your answer and I know I have mine. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I feel like I'm going to forget some components of the question as I'm answering it too. But um, yeah, I made this post because I was just getting a barrage of questions of people being like, why don't you include warm-ups in your programs? How should I warm up for the day? Blah, 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 all this stuff. And what I realized is that like, I write very aesthetic physique focused programs at this point. Like I still have my CrossFit clients and, and my, my performance-based clients, but a lot of what I do, especially in my, my general programs is more physique focused. So I just was starting to realize that there's so much time wasted and energy wasted in in preparation. And then I started thinking further about it. And I was like, okay, if you are so gnarled and beat up and your joints hurt so much that you feel like you need to do a 20 or 30 minute, like fully encompassing banded warm up with foam rolling and lacrosse balling and TRX or not TRX. Uh, 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 what's the, uh, crossover symmetry. Mm -hmm. Um, and you want to do all these crazy warm ups just so that you can sit under a bar and do like, 15 reps with an empty barbell back squat, then that shit's crazy. 
like you should you you need you should take back squats out of your program if that's what you need to do to do a back squat. Um, so that was like my initial kind of impetus for writing this post. And then with that said, to kind of qualify a little bit more, I think that people doing physique focused programs do not need to warm up much. They shouldn't need them for preparation on those movements. You should be able to get under whatever your first movement is with five minutes of prep, whether that's a little bit of foam rolling on your low back, maybe a teeny bit of targeted lacrosse ball into a shoulder joint so that you can get into a good back squat position. Um, I always, always include Jefferson curls. I think that that's like the number one thing that I include every day, no matter what I'm training. I do two reps of Jefferson curl with an empty barbell and it, each rep is like 30 seconds long. And by the time I finish my second rep, I'm like, all right, let's do this. I'm ready. Um, so I'm a huge fan of that for like physique style training. I very much believe that everything I said had, does not apply if you're doing Olympic lifting. If you're going into the gym and, and part A for you is squat snatch, you better put in 20 minutes of warm up minimum. Um, PVC pipe work, band pull aparts, face pulls, kettlebell or dumbbell overhead squats, one arm presses, hip mobility, ankle mobility, um, thoracic mobility. I mean, endless amounts of things that you need to do to be able to get into position to catch that barbell overhead in proper position. So um, that is my, I know I missed some parts of this. Uh, I'm going to take it off for one second. What did I miss over here? Uh, circuits before, how much is enough for its optimal factor? Yeah, so um, as you get older, you obviate, where'd you go? Where are you? There you are. As you get older, you definitely need uh, more warm up too. And, um, and so I think that that's something that you keep in mind is that as your joints get more brittle um, in the winter time, you might need a little bit more warm up too than you may in the summer. Um, but it's been a revelation for me at 36 years old to switch my style of training from more of this like CrossFit Olympic lifting, powerlifting focused stuff into more of the physique focused where I was having to warm up for 20 to 30 minutes. And it was that notion of is this really a good use? Is this really good training for me if I have to do this much warm up to prepare for my training? And then to still have my joints kind of feel like shit the next day. So being able to come into this physique style focused training and, and really be able to just walk into the gym and then five minutes later have an empty barbell on my back is, uh, is really a revelation. Yeah. I, I mean, hundred percent agree. Um, I think that something that came to mind is I used to have a training partner that was like really into warming up and I was always more jacked <laughs> and I, think was, I had more time to do more volume like and, and I never really got injured you know what I mean and yeah. my knee injuries that a lot of people know about have never been from lifting weights they're from soccer and different things like that so and in soccer I was sprinting and kicking I warmed up like it's just it's a different thing um to answer his question about my programs FIT and FM 2.0 those are ebooks I don't know who's purchasing them for my safety and liability, it has a warm up in there. You know what I mean? Like I, I have to like put that out there because, and it says do one to three rounds. And I literally go through, they do ankle mobility, hip mobility. They do some stability stuff, some overhead reach, some like breath work. Like 
very basic and it's not to uh, rehabilitate anybody. It's just to prevent and cover my bases as much as possible because I really don't know who's buying it. When I have a personal client working with me, I'm very similar to you. It's five minutes long. Like I'll look at their assessment and I'll be like, hey, your ankle mobility is garbage. I want you to move your ankles and maybe roll out your thoracic spine and then just do some warm-up sets, right? Like get your body working. Um, my warm-up right now for me personally is five to 10 minutes on the assault bike. It's because it's seven in the morning. It's cold in my garage and I just had knee surgery. Like that's full. Like that's, that's all it is. Um, and then I do, you know, two, three, four warm up sets. And then I start training. Um, I just find that people I'm with you, man. I think people tire themselves out in the warm up, and unless you're doing something like an Olympic lift, which those workouts aren't a ton of crazy volume. You focus on a few lifts and you get really good at that lift and you need that mobility to do that for aesthetics. I don't think, I think it's more important to do I, I like priming. And so priming for me is part of the workout. It's not part of the warm up. And I do that because if I, if you're going to bench safely and get the most out of it, you should probably do some kind of external rotation. You should fire your back. If you're gonna do a squat or a deadlift, you should probably fire your glutes or hamstrings and do some kind of anti-rotation or some kind of core stability work. Um, that's going to improve external rotation of the hip. You're going to have a better deadlift, better squat. Um, but it's not really a warm-up. It's actually like I, I consider that added volume for the upper back and everything. It's part of like ramp-up work almost. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think that that's also like a super misunderstood area is that like the number of people that I think understand training and I have to tell them that the what I'm writing is are the work sets. So like I wrote a blog on an evolved website and I was just called like ramp-up sets and RPE and something else. It was basically like here's a bunch of shit that you need to know. and um, like ramp up sets, man, if I'm going to back squat, if my goal is to reach a heavy set of five on back squat, I'm probably doing like five or six sets to prepare for that. Starting with an empty barbell for 15 and ending with 355 for a single before 375 for five or something like that. Like people need to understand ramp up sets better. And I think as you understand ramp up sets, you can actually begin to use them as part of your mobility prep. So like my first set of 15 back squats with an empty bar every rep is done with a three second negative. I'm pausing at the bottom and I'm kind of like twisting a little side to side and I'm kind of bouncing at the bottom and feeling my hips open up and exploding up at the top, maybe even getting like a jump squat in there so I can get explosive out of the bottom. And as the weights go up, range of motion shouldn't change. So that range of motion that you've established as your base criteria range of motion at that with the empty barbell is the same range of motion that I'm going to use in all my ramp up sets as I build in weight and decrease reps up until I get to that massive work set at the top. I really like that. I'm the same way. I don't, and I've had to explain the same thing because I don't put them in my programming, <laughs> but um, I've had a lot of, uh, which he's a good friend of mine, somebody I've looked up to for a long time. I've hung out a lot of times. Um, John Russin, he has a very popular program called FHT. Great program, but I've had a lot of clients come from them to work with me on nutrition or I've had clients that have just bought in his ebook and they're like, fuck, it seems like so much volume. And I'm like, did you read the section about ramp up sets? Like it's not all cause he'll put like three times six comma four times six. It's like seven sets of six. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. Um, and I even did that. Like, so I beta tested his program years ago. Like, uh, me and some guys in Seattle when he came to visit us before the ebook even launched like years ago. And I thought the same thing. I was like, fuck, this is a lot of volume. And he was like, no dude, like ramp up. He came into town and we did it with him. And I was like, Oh shit, I've been doing this wrong. Like <laughs> just smashing myself. 
I remember you guys actually talking about this exact topic on the podcast you did with him. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, great topic. Yeah. So the, the last part about that question um, is uh, do, do your warmups change when doing full body routines versus upper lower? Um, I would say the primers do, not necessarily the warm up. I think warm ups are for like, I just, I don't really do it right now because my knee has been feeling so much better. But for weeks, I was doing a warm up and it was the same every day because it was rehabilitation for my knee. So if you have an injury and you're doing a warm up for that injury, frequency is the best thing, not volume. So don't sit there for an hour doing it because you're just going to beat the joint up, do it a little bit, but do it all the time. So I don't think your warm ups necessarily need to change. However, primers obviously do. What is your compound lift? your primer is probably going to be suited for that lift, right? If you're squatting, maybe upper back and hamstring work with a side plank. If you're just benching, you can probably get away with just some face bowls or just some pull downs. Or if you want to um, be explosive and get the nervous system going, maybe a throw or a explosive push up or a jam ball slam, something along those lines that's safe, but it's going to fire the nervous system. Um, so I, I think me and Brian both agree on that. Warm ups probably don't change if you need them. And then primers probably do. Yeah, probably less uh, ramp up sets. If you're if you're doing like a similar movement pattern, you may not need a single ramp up set for the second exercise in the movement pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you can just do a shit ton of them for bench. But then when you get to dumbbell bench, you can just maybe do one set or no sets and jump right into your work sets. Yep, hundred percent agree. Staying on routine as much as possible while traveling for 14 days. What is the best hotel workout to keep my muscles stimulated to not lose any size during the trip? Body weight only. Um, obviously I don't know if we can like lay out a full program for you, but, um, do you have any tips on what he should be doing? So I think in a perfect world, I would plan it so that the first week of that 14 days is a deload week, which basically means that you can do minimal work or nothing at all and just kind of recover during that time. So maybe you overreach a little bit the prior week. Um, with that said, I think that the best thing you can do to maintain or even build and and instigate some additional stimulus during this period of time is a shit ton of metabolite work. Um, Man, grab a rock and uh, do a one minute AMRAP of air squats and then rest one minute and do that five times. Um, You can basically repeat that for any muscle group. You know, you can, you can take, uh, you can do handstand pushups on a wall. You can do wall climbs. You can do pike pushups where the butt goes up and pikes over. Um, I used to bring rings with me every time I would travel because you just find a tree branch somewhere and now you can do pull-ups and push-ups and ring rows and fuck rings are $33 on Amazon and you literally can just pack them in your bag and they don't take up any space. So, um, I think a super high rep and just building lactic acid, like the more that you can feel that burn and do those like super high rep shitty ass sets, um, that make you want to puke that should suffice pretty well for a week. Yeah. I've done, uh, I've filled up water bottles and done like rear delt and trap complexes like YTIs and Blackburn's laying on the floor. Um, I, I think I saw a video of you doing, uh, inverted rows on a fucking treadmill, like yep. <laughs> creative, you can hang around and do shit. Um, I remember when I was in Hawaii, I ran down to the beach and I grabbed some towels and I was doing sprints. I did uh, push-ups. I did something similar to the rock with air squats, but it was like a little log. Um, and then I, I threw the towels over the branch and I did chin-ups, cow chin-ups, you know what I mean? And, and I'm hitting everything. So I think you just really do have to get creative. It can be, and it can be a time to have fun with it. Don't necessarily worry about progressing. I would hundred percent agree with you. 
peek into it where you can take a good week off and then have fun, be creative, just, just get your heart rate going, hit your muscles and, and leave. Just, you know what I mean? Like don't stress too much about it. Yep. Um, I, I think sometimes people overestimate like how quickly you can lose progress or quickly you can lose muscle. Like it takes time, you know, like I had surgery and I was out for over three months. Like I lost two and a half, three pounds of my leg. That was three to four months of literally not doing shit on my left right. leg. It takes some time. Like people go on vacation, you're going to be okay. <laughs> Honestly, if you, if you do it right and you overreach and you head into that deload week, you might actually find that you take the first five to seven days of that vacation off completely. And then you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, oh my God, I'm jacked right now. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny about that. I, so I, today was my first lift in four days because I had my bachelor party and uh, it was just like a weekend to like get away, like, you know what I mean? Relax. And obviously I didn't sleep as much as I had planned because I was in Vegas. But um, after coming home, deciding to not train again, because I felt like shit, I slept more, didn't train again. Cause I still felt like shit. And this is just body awareness, slept more today. I was like, I feel really good. I had a great training session and I actually looked more jacked than when I left. That's right, man. You just got to let that inflammation flush out get some sleep and put some carbohydrates back in your body and you're good to go. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, this is a good one. What type of workout would you recommend to someone who's showing signs of adrenal fatigue? Yeah, I actually went through this and I think I may have covered this on your podcast, if not definitely on a different podcast, but, um, I went through this in 2015, 2016 timeframe. And the only thing that really got me through it was changing to a two times a week, full body program. And, um, it worked wonders. It took a while. Adrenal fatigue is a, uh, is a chronic disorder, right? So it's not something that you can just cure overnight or in even a month usually. Um, so for me, I trained two times a week. I had one, uh, hip hinge or squat pattern movement, one horizontal or vertical push and one horizontal or vertical pull in each workout. So there was three movements one day, three movements the other day. I did that twice a week and it literally took like four or five months of me doing that um, to start feeling better and more energized and feeling like I wanted to add in a little bit more volume at that point. I think people underestimate like how much you need to rest. Yeah. Like it's pretty fucking serious. If you really, so, and, and I think there's two ways to answer this question. I think one way is, do you really have adrenal fatigue? If somebody comes in and they're like, they hear all these things. It's like, if you're just overtaxed, it's just a matter of dropping volume. Um, I will take crossfitters who think they're adrenal fatigued and I don't think they actually are because the signs of true HPA axis dysfunction, if we want to use the real technical term, it's like very fucking serious, you know? So if they actually have it, hundred percent agree with you. Um, keep it simple. Just go through the functional movement pattern. So you keep the skill and the neurological ability to just do the movement but two times a week, three at most, and you're just like taking it really easy. I agree. With no, you. Cardio. no cardio. No um, cardio. You can go on a walk maybe, but like it's, yeah. it's because you're just taking a couch walk with the dog, nothing purposeful. Nope. Um, if you're somebody who is just doing too much work and let's say you don't clinically have it, I would just put you on a bodybuilding program. I have plenty of crossers that came to me and I'm like, hey, you're doing five or six days a week of this. I want you to do like one or two spend the other days doing bodybuilding and it's nothing under eight reps. It's all very slow tempos. I purposely plug in like controlled negatives, controlled concentric. So I don't want them being explosive, longer rest periods, less volume. And it's just like, Hey, spend time learning how to activate your muscles and going through proper joint mechanics. But, yeah. That was uh, actually the whole reason I built evolve training systems originally was it was to cater to burnout CrossFitters and it's expanded from there into, into a whole bunch of different stuff now. But 
um, yeah, when it first started, that was my target market and they just flooded to it. And everyone was like, within months, they were just like, Oh my God, I feel like a new person and blah, blah. So, um, you're a hundred percent right. Just the standard bodybuilding style training works for, for people that aren't actually HP one axis yeah. function. It, it's, it's a really hard buy-in too. I've had plenty of those people that you're like, Hey, just, just trust me. And they're like, but I love this. I like, and they, it takes them so long to buy in. And it's like, just give me three fucking weeks. Yep. And they're like, wow, I feel better. Hey, hey I PR out of my muscle ups. Oh, hey, I PR out of my clean. It's like, right. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I get that all the time. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's super cool. So um, we're going to finish off with this question. Uh, this is something I actually put in here because I think it would be really cool for us to kind of go over this. I think people would be interested. Um, and I'm interested. I'm always interested in this by my guests. And I should probably ask, ask this more because this is always something I wonder. Um, but the question is, how are you each currently training? So what is your current training split or routine? And like, what are you yeah. focusing on right now? So since I got back from Costa Rica, February 1st, I spent the entire time all the way until last week on a uh, push, pull legs, upper, lower. And I usually would uh, do that over eight to nine days. So I wasn't trying to fit five sessions into a calendar week. I was allowing myself a little bit more rest in there because I just felt a little beat up. Um, I was kind of getting back into the swing of things in the US and just kind of trying to adapt to life. Um, and it worked incredibly well. I instituted a lot of the sub failure techniques that we talked about in the beginning, um, building volume over time, building proximity to failure over time. And uh, what I found uh, at the two weeks ago at the end of my kind of four month progression through it was that I feel a thousand times better, I'm sleeping better. My strength has actually gone up, and most importantly, my response to the rep range has gone up, like we've been talking about, where it's not just my maximal strength, because I don't even test that shit anymore, but like my 6 to 10 or 10 to 15 rep range numbers have gone up. So I was so happy with that and enjoyed the process so much that starting this week, I am now... Um, taking it slightly more advanced and now I'm going push pull legs push pull legs and my intention is actually to fit that into a, a, a seven day calendar week where I'm doing six sessions over seven days I'm not gonna hold myself super accountable to that if I feel like I need rest or whatever I'll take an extra rest day and make it eight or nine days um, but one super cool aspect of this is that I am able to keep my sessions absolutely under an hour and most of them right now are, are 45 minutes or less so um, i do try and build volume and accumulate uh, load and proximity to failure week to week um, so right now in week one all of my sessions so far have been under 45 minutes which is super sick like a general day for me um, yesterday i did three sets of dumbbell incline three sets of uh, chest flies with a cable three sets of lateral raises and two sets of uh, triceps. So I had 11 total sets and that will build over time. That'll probably go one and a half times as much volume four weeks from now. Um, maybe one and three quarters times, not a whole lot, but basically all of my days are going to emulate a similar pattern. And the coolest part that I'm the most excited about with this new program is that I am finally part of a standard Globo style gym and I can work on my deficient quad game. Um, I am extremely posterior dominant. My deadlift and my RDLs, uh, my hip thrusts, all of the gluten hamstring stuff comes easy to me and is fun. 
and all of the quad stuff is just a nightmare waiting to happen. And uh, when I try and back squat, when it gets heavy enough, I start hinging at the hip and, and caving over because my hamstrings and glutes want to take over and my quads can't sustain power through the middle portion of the movement. So I'm really, really excited to institute hack squats and leg presses. Um, for the first time in 20 plus years of training, I'm actually taking back squats out. So I've never done this before, 20 years. I'm going to take back squats out for a three to four month period, see how my quads respond to the new stimulus, and then uh, put the back squats back in and see how my body responds to that. I think, I think you'll have good results from it, dude. I think too many people – the back squat is a, fu- a perfect movement. I love it, and I think it's good and important, especially for strength. But I do think for a hypertrophy stimulus, because um, I do the same thing with my hips. I even found – like I started doing dead squats. I'll take the trap bar and flip it completely upside down. And taking that squat pattern allows me to stay more upright, knees glide forward a little bit more, or zercher squat. Like I get more mm-hmm. quad stimulus. The problem is I can't go as heavy, so it's kind of like a give or take. Um, but I like that, man. It's funny because upper lower push pull legs or push pull legs upper lower is absolutely my favorite split. And what I like about what you said is letting people know. I think more people need to understand that like not every uh, micro cycle has to be seven days, right? Like, I think it's okay to spread that out. And as you become a more advanced lifter, I think it's good because you can be more intuitive and be like, you know what? I need another day of rest and spread that out. And it's not, you know, Sunday doesn't need to be rest day. Monday doesn't need to be bench day. Like it's okay to switch these things up. Yeah, for sure, man. I agree a hundred percent. And the, then the more I'm nice to myself and when I, when I kind of wake up and on the wrong side of the bed and I don't have that like fire to go train and then I take that rest day or I go for a walk or something like that. I always come into the gym the next day and there's never a moment where I'm like, Oh fuck, I can't believe I took that rest day. I feel terrible. Today. You know, it's like every day I feel so much better because I took the rest day and, and I have a more productive session out of it and I can get more volume and um, recover better. Yeah. And I think like, and this is just my guess, but doing the push ball legs, push ball legs, I'm sure you're going to accumulate volume. And after a while, you're probably going to shift back to less days per week because it's good to have those blocks of like a ton of volume and a ton of frequency. And then you kind of pull away, have more rest and bring it back in. Um, which is kind of what I've actually done lately. So for me, because of my knee injury, I've been kind of going through like a crazy period of time. But, um, when the knee injury happened, it was obviously three days a week of upper body. And that was it. Like there was nothing else I could do. I was on crutches and I was limited. Everything had to be seated. Um, and then after surgery, I took a full week off and then I got into again, three days a week upper body once I could actually get off crutches and I started like doing rehab for my knee I went to a uh it was three days a week of upper two days a week of lower because my lower body was like is very minimal and then I went to a uh and I actually really like this split for a brief amount of time because it's very intense but upper lower upper lower upper lower so you're doing three days a week of every muscle group um, and it's been working really well. I've been doing this for eight weeks now and it's been going well and I've been accumulating volume. So starting next week, I'm actually changing to a upper lower rest, push pull legs rest. And the reason being is because over these last eight weeks, um, my upper body has been progressing because obviously I'm lifting a lot, but my lower body. Yeah, exactly. And my lower body is finally starting to push real weight. So I was probably above maximum recoverable volume from a normal standpoint on my upper body, but I was so low on volume on my lower body that my, my nervous system was, has been totally fine. But yeah. these last couple of weeks, I'm starting to kind of dance on that fine line because even though I'm only doing like four exercises a session for my legs, 
I'm building volume. I'm starting to go heavier. Like I'm actually pulling some heavier weights on my hip thrust or RDL. Um, I can't do heavy squats yet, but I've actually been implementing a lot of leg extensions in high volume and just like pausing and getting my quad to fire like crazy. But I could tell my nervous system starting to be like, okay, things are getting real again. So load week. Yeah, exactly. So this is actually my deload week right now, which worked out perfect because I just got back from Vegas. And yeah, yeah. next week it'll be upper lower push bowl legs, and I think that's gonna be a good mix. I have a question for you. The uh I always ask this of people when they when I hear that they're on an upper lower, upper lower, upper lower, six day a week or or six micro day microcycle. Yeah. Are you actually hitting all areas of the upper body each day, or are there times where you're like I'm going to do a dip and call this chest and triceps or are you like targeting each specific area each, each day? Yeah. So we, uh, so I've helped from a, a, a Chris Barricat helped me. We actually did it. Um, so day one is pretty much everything. It's a little bit lower rep, but still nothing like below six reps hitting everything. Like it's probably my longest stay in the gym, but it's, uh, shit. I'd probably do, I mean, chest, shoulders, triceps, biceps at the end, um, lats, upper back. Like I really do hit everything. The second upper body day is more just like heavy push and pull, not much shoulder. And then the third upper body day is much more shoulder and bicep. That's what I was wondering. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of figured it would be that way versus equally distributing the volume for each muscle group throughout each day. What I've found is I've had a, I've had a couple clients go through this, uh, actually both of them physique competitors and one of them really, really liked it spread out like that, but he's very analytical. So when he sees it on paper and his frequency is like perfect in theory, I think he likes it. The other guy is more like me and I don't think he gets a pump enough in any one muscle because he's just doing a little bit of each. Yeah. So I, so I think he doesn't enjoy it as much. And that's kind of how I am. Like I like my second and third day because the second day I get an insane chest and back pump. The third day I get an insane arm and shoulder pump. Right. But I'm still hitting a little bit of everything every day. So I think it's kind yeah. of like depends on the person. For sure, yeah. And I'm kind of doing the same thing with my leg days too. Like I have one leg day that's a little more quad dominant that has some hams and another day that's ham dominant that has a little bit of quad. So at least you're still getting that like two times a week frequency that science shows is, is optimal. Right. hundred percent agree. Um, dude, I love this, man. This ended up being really cool. Um, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate That's you. Cool. On. Yeah. yeah. Doing the question. Uh, sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, I'm, I'm amped dude. This has been really fun. It's my first, uh, my first Q and a podcast, like I said, where I wasn't like a featured guest. So, um, I hope we, we have an opportunity to do some more of this stuff in the future. Absolutely. Dude, before you go, make sure you drop all your links and your Instagram and everything like that. So people can follow you if they're not yeah, for sure. I'll make it easy. Um, at Brian Borstein on Instagram. You can also find me if you just type in Evolved Training Systems. Um, I'm at evolvetrainingsystems.com for, uh, for all things training, generic or one-on-one -on -one individual coaching. And uh, that's pretty much it. You should be able to find me that way. Love it, man. I'm going to link all that in the show notes. And dude, thanks again, once again. Thank you, sir. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, 
head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.